0: You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbart's.com.au. Well, it'd be terrific to have your Bibles open or your Bible app at John chapter 20. This is our mini-series, so a two-week series, as we reflect and rejoice in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're picking up in John chapter 20 uh, today with this account with, with Thomas. There's also an outline in the back of the news, so if that's of help, Please make use of that. But right now, let's let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news that we have to rejoice in and to celebrate. We pray that you help us to grow in that news, in the power of your Spirit, that we might rejoice that we are resurrection people, living in this resurrection age, awaiting your Son's return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This week, Patrice and I, so Patrice is my wife, uh, Patrice and I asked two of our kids, what has been your most significant first day in your life ever? Giovanna, so our five-year-old, she said the first day of kindy, probably because that's when she became a school student. She'd say that's when I became a a big kid. Uh, Theodore, so Giovanna's older brother, He said, the first day I played chess, because in his mind that's probably when he became a chess champion. (laughs) You might say, well, the most significant first day in my life was when I finished uni or school, when I started working or when I started retiring or got married or became a parent. Whatever it might be, we can have all sorts of important first days. Some of them aren't always good. But what makes them significant, what makes them stand out, is that they're not just the beginning of something new, but they mark the beginning of a whole new era in our lives and who we are. John claims that two of the greatest first days in the history of the world centre not on us, but on Jesus. They absolutely affect us, but they're not primarily about us. In fact, it's with these two first days that John bookends his gospel. The first first day is with the sun's role and the launch of creation. So remember right back at the beginning of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But as John draws to a close, as we get to chapter 20, we're drawn into another new beginning with the launch of new creation on the first day of the week through Jesus as he is resurrected and appears to the disciples. The resurrection of Jesus wasn't the finish, but the first day of a whole new age awaiting his return. And remarkably, the resurrection is not just historical, but personal. John wants us to see that this isn't just a piece of philosophy to to ponder and park, nor some sort of academic thought experiment to consider or a tidbit from the archives. No, John wants us to receive the resurrection as history, as real, in order that we would believe and have life, that we would become resurrection people. That's what's on the line. That's John's goal. He makes that abundantly clear in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, including, of course, perhaps especially the resurrection, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the goal. That you may believe and have life the resurrection doesn't just signal the beginning of a new age and that which is to come but the resurrection is an invitation to get caught up in what jesus has achieved so the resurrection has implications for every single one of us it did for thomas and it can for you it's because of the resurrection that we can have peace that lasts proof for belief and purpose with power first it's because of the resurrection that we can have peace that lasts. So if you've got your Bible open, let's have a look at John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you whilst peace be with you was a common greeting of the day, it's obvious that there's absolutely nothing ordinary about Jesus using those words here. Uh, Here the disciples are grief-stricken, disillusioned, even fearful for their lives, when Jesus kind of calmly bursts into this locked room and declares, peace be with you. This is not Jesus simply saying, g'day, or I'm back. This is not just a peace because he's no longer dead. But in these words, Jesus is pointing, even declaring something far more significant. That's evident by the message of reconciliation that he is about to entrust to the disciples to declare, but it's also evident because of the promise that he had previously made. So back in John chapter 14, as Jesus shares that last meal with his friends as he's about to go to the cross, Jesus promised them peace. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Now, those words would have unlikely made much sense in that moment. They perhaps would have seemed even more nonsensical as Jesus went to the cross. But it was through Jesus going to the cross that he was opening up a way for real peace. The quality of that peace is restored relationship with God, peace for a pardoned sinner for us, the means of that peace is through Jesus' death and resurrection. My peace, he's the only one qualified to give it. It's the peace that he alone has promised. And now as this new age has dawned in the resurrection, that peace is being made known and available to all. In J.C. Ryle's commentary on the Gospel of John, he makes this wonderful observation of just how remarkable it is that Jesus's first words here to the disciples are words of peace. Despite the disciples having failed to understand the teaching that he would be raised, despite their fear in hiding away, despite their apparent unwillingness to believe the testimony of Mary, Jesus' first words not blame, not rebuke, nor fault finding, but peace. That same offer and that same reception is available to us. You know, on the night of Jesus' birth, the angels proclaimed there would be peace on earth. Today, we are invited through the same Lord Jesus receive that peace we go through jesus because it's his peace to give yet it's also a peace that we are to declare so verse 21 peace be with you as the father has sent me i'm sending you and with that he breathed on them and said receive the holy spirit if you forgive anyone's sins their sins are forgiven if you do not forgive them they are not forgiven now there is absolutely no shortage of debate about these verses. They are really hotly contested, but let's be clear that what it cannot possibly mean is that the apostles—so at least the ones that were there—so there were ten apostles there who had who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Remember, Thomas was absent. I don't know what his excuse was, but he was he was absent, and and Judas had uh, betrayed Judas. Ju- jesus so there's 10 of them so it cannot mean uh, that they have an authority on their own to forgive sins they cannot anymore go around forgiving by their own power than they can go withholding forgiveness on their own whim clearly forgiveness of sins is the prerogative of god alone not theirs they could have responded to jesus jesus only god can forgive sins and they'd be right But God was going to use them to forgive by declaring what he had done. We might, of course, forgive someone for some way that they have offended us personally. But there is no mediator, no apostle, personal pastor, no one other than Jesus, who has the power and who has made the sacrifice in order to forgive sins. As part of our services here at St Bart's, whenever we gather as God's people, When the minister declares forgiveness, it's not on the basis of their authority. It's not on the basis of my authority. But it's a declaration based on what we know we can receive when we respond to what Jesus has done. The church, together, we have been entrusted to proclaim the message of reconciliation and forgiveness. That there is a path to forgiveness that has been opened up through Christ. The apostles, of course, had a special role in that, in the life of the church and the church to come, not because they had special forgiveness power, but because it's only through the apostolic eyewitness, because of what they saw, they witnessed the risen Jesus, that we can know and keep declaring repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus. That those who so respond repentance and trust, are forgiven. As people receive the apostolic word about Jesus, so they receive forgiveness. As people reject the apostolic word about Jesus, so they reject forgiveness. But the peace afforded to us, peace that lasts, is through the risen Jesus alone. Second, it's because of the resurrection we have proof for belief. So let's look from verse 24 and this whole encounter. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas gets a pretty hard time. He's known more for how the story begins, isn't he? You know, doubting Thomas rather than how the story ends, believing Thomas. But it's really important to remember the context. We don't know why Thomas had been absent when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. It's a great reminder never to miss a meeting, isn't it? We don't know why he wasn't there. We don't know why he wasn't in the room when it happened. But having not been there, it doesn't take too much stretching of the imagination to appreciate his reservations as to why he doubted that Jesus had risen. We can probably sympathise with that. Perhaps you've known or know that doubt. Remember, it's been a week since Jesus appeared to the disciples. And when John says that they told Thomas that they have seen the Lord, in verse 25, this doesn't mean that they had just told him once and then left it, but the tense of the words means that they kept on telling Thomas over and over again. It's a whole week, it's on repeat. Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, we have seen the Lord. I mean, that's the natural response you would expect for people who have seen the risen Lord Jesus. That should be our song as well. But Thomas won't believe it. His objections, of course, could have been for a whole bunch, a whole range of reasons, perhaps experiential, intellectual or emotional. Let me... Unpack those, so perhaps Thomas had experiential objections. So not so much because I need evidence to believe, but unless I see, unless I personally see and experience it myself, then I won't believe. The problem with that, of course, is that we have to believe and do believe all sorts of things that we can't possibly experience for ourselves, like things in history, because we don't exist across all time. Or things that happen apart from us because we don't exist across all space. Perhaps Thomas had intellectual objections. No, I won't believe because I don't think this is possible. A scientific sort of objection. Well, because I can't repeat this like an experiment, I won't believe it's real. Now, the problem, of course, with that is that this type of evidence relies on something being repeatable. It doesn't help us if something was a one-off, if it only happened once. Or perhaps Thomas had emotional objections, that just the, the sheer thought of entertaining the possibility that his Lord was alive was too much for his heart to bear when he'd only just begun to process and grieve the very real death that he knew his Lord had suffered. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side. I have experiential, intellectual, emotional objections. Perhaps some of those resonate with you. We don't really know why Thomas objected, but actually what matters is what happens next. When Jesus comes to Thomas, and did you know, he knows precisely what Thomas has been thinking and saying, Jesus simultaneously invites him to touch the wounds and rebukes him for not believing all at the same time. Remember, there had already been plenty of evidence. Thomas knew the tomb was empty. Thomas knew the Old Testament promises that the Messiah would be raised. Thomas had even heard the eyewitness accounts of his trusted friends. But now he had seen Jesus' hands and side. And so he responds with some of the greatest words in history, some of the greatest words we can possibly utter. My Lord and my God. For all Thomas's apparent doubting, it's probably the clearest declaration of who Jesus is in all the Gospels. And this isn't just some sort of cold affirmation of doctrine, you know, Jesus is the Lord and is God, but this is personal My Lord and my God. These are words that we are invited to proclaim for ourselves. maybe you think, well, if I was in a locked room and Jesus appeared, well, yes, I would definitely believe. But look at what Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. As we're invited to believe, Jesus says, or at least implies, that not only is it possible and reasonable without seeing him, but blessed, that is, highly favoured are those who do. That's us, or it could be you. Jesus is not asking us to believe in the absence of evidence, but that we can come to believe on the basis of a different type of evidence. Remember, John records these things, these signs, especially the resurrection, in order that we may believe, and by believing, we may have life in his name. We believe not by the same sort of evidence as Thomas, but we can believe because of his seeing. We believe on the basis of the reliability of eyewitness accounts. That's what we have written down for us in the New Testament. In fact, Throughout the early church, even recorded in Acts, we see the veracities, the truth, the integrity of the claims about Jesus were weighed up based on eyewitness accounts. The apostles had a special role in that. But others also encountered the risen Lord Jesus in groups and even in a group of 500 at one time. That's the evidence that we're invited to respond to. We can't experience Jesus living in that time and place. We can't rationalise if it's possible because it only happened once. We can't repeat it. But we can weigh up if we think the eyewitness testimony is true. Have you done that? And of course, this isn't just for those who do not yet believe, but it's also for those who do. There are you know, so many wonderful ways that we can get growing in our faith as we await Jesus' return. But the best way is to keep coming back to these eyewitness accounts, that in the midst of storm or the midst of calm, that as things might cause us to falter or to doubt, that we would keep anchoring our life to the truth that Jesus was raised to life. That's why every Sunday is actually Resurrection Sunday. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Last week in the Sydney Morning Herald, you may have seen an article, it was actually on Easter Day by Barney Schwartz, who was the former editor of The Age. And in the article, Barney shared in his own words that after years of sneering at Christianity, when I actually read the Bible, my defences dissolved and I became a Christian. Reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus and how the resurrection is a guarantee for those who trust in Jesus, he continued, the resurrection struck me as a story too beautiful to be invented. And not only a story, but a historical fact. And if historical fact, then the most important historical fact in human history. The resurrection is proof for belief finally it's because of the resurrection we have purpose with power Uh, with everything that's been happening in this passage it'd be so easy to miss that as jesus appears to the disciples he also sends them out with this good news they're not meant to just stay in some sort of locked room he says as the father has sent me i'm sending you when jesus says blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe it kind of relies on those who've encountered Jesus to actually go out into the world and tell people that they've seen him. He is risen, he is risen, he is risen. And of course, we share a part in that too. We do that not just with ways, but our whole way of life. Over Easter, I've really, uh, really loved the art exhibition that we've had on display here on the theme of Resurrection. And I have to say, it has been a particular joy to say, see the way in which the children have responded and drawn and painted and really expressed so beautifully uh, what the good news of the resurrection means to them. One of my favourites is by one of the girls in Sunday school who drew a picture of herself full of joy because of the resurrection. Oh, the resurrection taking a grip on her life, filled her with joy. It's, it's so easy uh, to be paralyzed sometimes knowing where to begin. Other times we can just feel powerless in knowing how to share that news. Of course, we're not powerless. We've received the same spirit the disciples received, but it doesn't necessarily mean we go about it in exactly the same way. It's easy to get caught up with particular ways of sharing the good news. That's important. But the disciples didn't begin with a method. They began with joy. They began with a posture of of directing everything in their life to God because the resurrection changed everything and gave them life. As we put our trust in the risen Jesus, the purpose of our lives, the whole shape of our lives, gets bundled up with his resurrection. We're part of a whole new age unfolding that will be brought to completion when he returns. When I first went overseas to study many years ago now, uh, I was studying theology, continue to study theology. My research at the time, it focused on the shape of ministry from selection through to retirement in the Church of England. I know that that filled everyone at 7.30 with lots of excitement as, as well. But whilst we were there, I was really keen to try and help out in our local church. And so I remember meeting up with our our local minister, the minister of the local church. And when we met, I was completely caught off guard when one of the first questions that he asked me was, how do you hope your research will contribute to the unfolding mission of God? When he asked me that question, I was totally taken aback. I thought you know what I'm researching? Isn't it really obvious how this contributes to the unfolding mission of God? Can't you tell? But then reflecting a little more, I thought, hang on, is it obvious how it contributes to the mission of God? Have I just assumed? Actually, have I even stopped to ask the question? What am I doing? How am I doing it? Who am I serving? The first day of the resurrection was the beginning of a whole new age. When we declare, My Lord and my God, that becomes our greatest first day. Because it is at that moment that our lives and our eternity get bundled up in Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection. That is yet to come. Today could be your best first day. Shall we pray? Gracious God, we thank you so much for the reliability of the eyewitness accounts that we have that can fill us with confidence that not only is Jesus the one he claimed to be, but that he truly was raised from the dead. Lord, we thank you for the life that we have, for the purpose that we share, for our eternity that gets bundled up in Jesus as we believe and declare, my Lord and my God. I particularly pray, Lord, that you remind us of that every day, wherever we are, on all of our front lines. I also particularly pray for anyone who is not sure, who has questions about the resurrection. Lord, please help them not to delay considering that. Please help them in the power of your spirit to be at work, that they might examine the evidence, that they might weigh it up, that they too might believe and declare that Jesus is their Lord and God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast from St. Barts. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au